0: and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and today two authors, uh, both in the same genre though. We're heading back to uh, the 1940s and to uh, Australia's battles uh, in New Guinea and against Japan in World War II. Uh, The first book we're going to talk about is uh, Tom Gillings' book, uh, Bastard Behind the Lines, and then we'll get to uh, Philip Bradley and his book, The Battle for Shaggy Ridge. A couple of books that encapsulate what happened in that time period in a couple of pivotal battles, uh, and in particular in, uh, in Tom's case, uh, the book that he's written, a uh, particularly pivotal man in the, uh, in the history of Australia's battle against Japan during World War II. Quite a character. Uh, is the uh, the focus of uh, Tom's book, Bastard Behind the Lines. Uh, but a reminder too, of course, about our fabulous podcast partners, CSCG. Now, if you're talking finance, and we all do at uh, this time of the year, whether it's to see how much money you've got for uh, retirement, to see how much money you've got for Christmas spending, whatever it is, if you want to uh, get your finances in line, CSCG are the people to talk to. Give them a call, 9974 Or jump on their website and uh, have a look at the people that you're dealing with, have a look at the services they offer, and I'm sure you'll be convinced they are terrific people to deal with. cscg.com.au or 9974 8333. The first of our books is Bastard Behind the Line. It's an amazing story of a man called Jock McLaren and his escape from two prisoner of war camps. Uh, and, uh, And what he did after that is quite amazing. Tom Gilling has put this book together, so let's talk to Tom about Bastard Behind the Lines. I guess the, the most obvious thing is, what, what drew you to the Jock McLaren story? I mean, it's it's compelling, but what drew you to it?
1: Well, I was down at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, and I was looking at an exhibition there about how the DIAX in Borneo had helped some of the um, special forces operations behind the lines. And I found out that there were a couple of uh, fellas down there who were involved in that uh, Z special unit who had escaped from the Japanese. And... One of them, Jock, um, Jock McLaren, had escaped from the Japanese twice, and that seemed to me a pretty remarkable story. The, the book I'd written before was about uh, Australian prisoners on the Thai Burma Railway, and so I knew what they were experienced and how tough it was. And for a man to have escaped twice from the Japanese seemed like uh, something worth investigating. It's a story
0: that uh, is, well, uh, once you're drawn to him, once you find out some of the things that he's done, it's quite quite unbelievable. But did you discover that there was, in fact, some uh, inconsistencies in, in what the story actually was?
1: Well, a, a book was um, written with Jock's help early, um, good, about 10 years after the war ended. Um, I think Jock had uh, been keen to write his own book. Um, a journalist came in to help him, and that was written. That was a, that was a very lively read, let's say, but some of it, uh, when you started exploring the other accounts from um, from the very few witnesses who would have been there at the same time, um, there was there were some inconsistencies, I think. But um, that just made the story more interesting to me. Yeah.
0: So you went and uh, jumped into the Japanese and Allied records of uh, of what happened in that, uh, and I mean, you obviously would have opened a can of worms then.
1: Yeah, there's, look, there's a lot of um, a lot of records available from both sides, and and there are also, of course, the um, Several of the of the Japanese were um, tried after the war in the war crimes trial. So there's there's a fair amount fair amount of information um, available about these. But one of the interesting things about Jock's story is that for for a lot mm-hmm. of what he did, there is very little eyewitness account except for um, his own account and occasionally another one, which is which is you know possibly um, as subjective as his was. And so it's very hard to actually find official documents that um, that give an indication one way or the other
0: he was uh, an incredible human being though i mean just in terms of you mentioned uh, to break uh, to break out of a japanese uh, prison once as you said is is quite outstanding but to do it twice is just <laughs> seemingly unbelievable
1: it is well there's some very sad stories towards um, when he escaped the second time he asked one of the fellows who'd come out with him the first time so he escaped first from changi in singapore and then was uh, captured in Malaya, and then ended up in Sandakan. And before he went the second time, he was obviously a man who just refused to live behind the wire. But um, he did ask one of the fellows who would escaped with him from Changi to come with him, and um, and and this fellow said, um, "Look, the war's going to be over soon, Jack. I'll I'll sit it out here." And of course, he was he was one of the two and a half thousand Australians that that died at Sandakan, and yeah. um, and and Jock survived.
0: Yeah. There's no romanticism really about uh, about what they went through, is there? I mean, there's a romanticism about looking back on it now, but at the time, uh, it was bloody harrowing.
1: It was extraordinary. It's, uh, it's 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 incredible. It's incredible what they survived. They they um, and, and I found this again with the with the book I wrote earlier about the survivors of the Thai Burma Railway, how they could have endured what they did and um, and still survived the war and and lived on as. as as functioning human beings, is almost extraordinary. I think from to, from us from our point of view now.
0: You've written a number of books and co-written a number of books as well. The, 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 your fascination with uh, with that period of time uh, is it because there's great stories to be told there? Is that the is that the major thing? And they, and they haven't been told well or been told at all?
1: Well, I think there's some stories that are told over and over, are there? there are the Kakoda and Tobruk, many other um, aspects of, the, of, of Australia's war, um, I think, have been told many times. But you don't have to look very far outside that to find stories and characters who, who really have, have not been written about at all. So I found that the Thai Burma Railway had been, has obviously been written about an awful lot. But I, I tracked down a couple of uh, old soldiers, almost 100 years old, yes. who, who never told their stories. And, um, and, and that's what makes it interesting to me.
0: And there was a lot of those stories when they came back. A lot of the people that, when they came back from war, the ones that did come back, who didn't want to talk about it, who didn't want the stories told.
1: I think Jock um, was keen to tell his story as a sort of uh, as a ripping yarn. Yeah. But um, I suspect he said very little to his family. In fact, I know he said very little to his family. And I think he was he was probably very. Um, there were probably many like him. They they just um, they didn't want to talk about it.
0: Was the way of dealing with it? Why? Why is someone like a Jock McLaren not a national? Uh, you know, a, a well recognised national
1: hero. Well, that's a good question. I mean, he's got. The, 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 there would be few more extraordinary stories of the war. Few more extraordinary stories of survival, wouldn't there? And um, and he was he was recognised. He got he got the um, the military cross twice. Um, he was uh, awarded the second by the um, the governor of Queensland. So he was recognised at the time. I suppose in Jock's case. He he died in the in the nineteen fifties. He he couldn't really settle. He couldn't. I don't think he could settle anywhere. He certainly couldn't settle in Australia. And so he went up to New Guinea and he, he tried to make a go of a coffee plantation. And uh, having survived all that he had in the war, he, he backed a tree into a he backed his jeep into a truck into a tree, um, and a, a falling branch killed him. So um, I, I think the fact that his, his story sort of ended there. His, his book lived a short life, and, and after that, you just find him in the archive.
0: You, you, you survived two escapes out of a uh, prison camp. So, you know, you, you go back in a 26 foot uh, whaleboat and you, you attack uh, the, uh, the enemy again, and you do all these things that he did, and then a bloody tree kills you. I mean, that's just uh, the. the you, well, you can read about it, but <laughs> you, you know what I mean when I say you wouldn't read about that kind of ending to the story.
1: Absolutely. Look, he lived dozens of lives during the the two years he was up in the Philippines and fighting with the guerrillas. He had so many encounters with the the Japanese where he ought to have died and where men on either side of him did die. But it is incredible that he survived because he certainly was someone who was happy to throw himself into harm's way. And, yeah, to have, to have died in an in a accident like that seems just a, a terrible irony.
0: What, uh, Tom, is, the, is the, uh, the current appetite for these stories in terms of uh, the, the, the current generation wanting to know about what happened there and, and the people that were involved with it? Is it? Or is it a dark part of our history that we don't really like to, uh, to expose to much because we now live in such a global community?
1: We do live in that global community, don't we? And but I, I think it's I think it's a story that um, that the people are still keen to read about. I mean, the, the government, all governments, are, are very keen to to push the Anzac legend, and the war memorial would be one of the most visited tourist sites in the country. I think there's still a great fascination for it, and I think and I think there's a great admiration for for, for people who um, who put themselves through that experience and. I'm sure a lot of us wonder whether we would be able to do the same if uh, if it came to that.
0: Oh, I don't think we have any doubt that we all think that we we probably couldn't. Is is it a, a an homogenised version though that that people are getting these days rather than the you know the nuts and bolts and the and the nitty gritty of what what happened and how how harrowing and how you know how awful it was.
1: I think that's a good question. That's that's a it's a risk. I think, and I think that's why it's important to 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 look outside some of the received stories that we've got, and uh, and and look a bit more into the original sources. So so um, both looking for stories that we weren't aware of, like the like the story of Jock McLaren, but also looking to um, pieces that that actually research from original the original experience rather than just receiving the tale of of Gallipoli or, or whatever it happens to be which I think you're right there's a risk that something like that can be sort of mythologized and homogenized down to a few elements whereas the the real human story behind it is, is often um, is, can be horrifying
0: yeah uh, we should point out that uh, Jock's not the bastard uh, in the in the title
1: of the book is he that's that's his boat. Jock is not the bastard, although he did, he did use that word a bit, but um, no, he is not the word. He, that was the, the name of a whale boat that was brought up by a submarine from Australia to help the uh, Filipino guerrillas, and um, Jack uh, took a fancy to it, and he called it the bastard, and he stuck a gun front and aft, and he, uh, he started uh, shooting up the Japanese around the coast of the Philippines, the coast of Mindanao. So yes, it was the name of his boat,
0: did he have a death wish or was he just that uh, that sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is to describe him in terms of um, the way he went about, uh, you know, de- just relentlessly continuing his, his sort of war against the Japanese?
1: I don't think he had a death wish because one of the most extraordinary aspects of his story was when he found that he had, he, he was a vet and so he had some medical knowledge and he realised while he was in the Philippines that he was, suffering from uh, an illness that was going to kill him, which was acute appendicitis. Yeah. And so he actually removed his own appendix. So he certainly wasn't going to be philosophical about uh, passing away at that point. I think he was very determined to survive. But on the other hand, he put himself harm's way at the drop of a hat. And I think that was he, he uh, I think there's a, there's a quote in the book once where I say um, he told someone that he, this is what he lived for, that living as a, fighting as a, guerrilla behind the lines where there was no authority to tell him what to do um where you survived on your own initiative on your own guts um that was that was his world and um so he he, i think he he lived for that kind of danger and for that kind of risk but he uh he was very good at surviving it.
0: Uh, talk about the appendix operation—the the self appendix operation. It's quite uh, quite startling. I mean, there's a bit of folklore about that too, isn't there? In his version of how it all happened.
1: Well, yeah, he he tells the story that he was he, he did it himself. He did it with a um, with a, a razor blade and uh, scissors on a on a table in a bush hut um, with someone holding a mirror over him so he could see how to um, so he could see where where to cut. He, he did have that rudimentary skill as a, as a vet, so he, he, he knew what he was doing. I, I fished around in the archives while writing the book and other people have taken their own appendix out, but they tended to do it under um, rather cleaner conditions in <laughs> operating theaters and, and with local anesthetic. Jock didn't have any of that. but uh, I think if you read more if you read Jock's whole story, its it sort of um, it, it, it's realistic. His, people who fought with him believed that he had done it. Uh, and um, we, no one has come forward to say he didn't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you're digging around the archives and, uh, and and looking into into Jock's life, did you find other uh, similar uh, characters to Jock?
1: Again, he's he he is so much a larger than life figure. Yeah. Others were uh, there were also I think any of the uh, eight people they he he's escaped from Sandakan with seven others. Um, I think uh, they all had extraordinary stories, as did the, the six men who actually escaped from the death marches. So I think um, if, if you are actually able to hear their story, whether it's in their own words, whether it's from people who knew them, whether it's from things they've written, I think each one of them has an extraordinary story. Uh, I think it's are just lucky that, um, that Jock put some of his down and there were enough people around J- Jock who remembered him that um, I was able to piece together
0: that story. When you, when you write a book like this, because it is, uh, you know, a lot of time spent uh, researching and archiving and speaking to people and stuff, is it a, a, an easy book to write or is it a difficult book to kind of piece
1: together to, to get the whole jigsaw of it to fit? it's difficult to, to put those pieces together because you do come across things that are contradictory. And, and with a book like this, I, it, was, it was a bit of a challenge to reconcile different accounts because yeah, yeah. obviously it, it happened a long time ago and the people who are involved are actually uh, are, are, are no longer with us. So yeah. it's, you can't question them directly. So um, it takes um, yeah, a, 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 bit of, um, a bit of thought to try and reconcile these different opinions and be fair to both sides but that's part of the excitement of, of researching a subject and writing a book I think if it was all straightforward and it just uh, fell onto the page it would be less interesting to write and I think therefore less interesting to read
0: yeah well you've certainly done you've done jock uh, proud I would have thought you'd be very happy with uh, with what uh, the bastard behind the lines uh, has got to offer what's uh, what's next on the agenda for you
1: well'm I'm, I'm doing a bit of research about um, the commandant of the camp at the um, uh, Sandercan, who who was ah. pr- prosecuted in one of the war crimes trials at the end of the war, and uh, I think I think there's a there's an interesting story there as well.
0: Thanks to Tom for his time Now we move on to our second book And we're heading to New Guinea For the Battle of Shaggy Ridge Philip Bradley is a noted historian uh, In the World War II area And has uh, written quite a few books on the subject And has actually written another book About uh, the Battle for Shaggy Ridge Previous to this one A more historical tune But we'll uh, talk to him now About this book And it is an extraordinary story Of a, a, an Australian battle That sort of got a little bit lost in the wash But uh, let's bring it to light now With Philip Bradley
2: this was my lockdown project. I'd written a, a book on the same subject so going back now 20 years old, which was an academic book, my first book. And I just wanted to redo it and write it in a much more uh, readable uh, way and uh, with the publisher I've since uh, gone to, which, which can get it to a wider audience, yeah. So it was my project.
0: <laughs> uh, and the other thing that you do, I mean, you, you, you're telling this from both sides. That, uh, that in itself in, in this day and age is quite an unusual thing, I would have thought.
2: Yeah, it's hard to get Japanese accounts, but I was really lucky. I had a friend who managed to interview some Japanese when he worked in Japan, and one of them was at Shaggy Ridge which was quite extraordinary because very few people came home from there. Yeah. And then I met a I met a Japanese colonel some years ago who had interviewed another one. And then I was lucky enough to get in contact with a guy in Japan who translated an account from a guy who was on Shaggy Ridge. Uh, and then plus I found out how to find a lot of prisoner accounts, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think my, my approach is that you can't really cover uh, a battle properly unless you've got both sides. So this actually this adds a lot to the uh, understanding of it.
0: Uh, war is something that a lot of people who've been to don't want to talk about. How did you find that when you when you tried to uh, flush out uh, you know parts of this story?
2: Well, it was, it was interesting because it goes back, uh, all those interviews, uh, most of the interviews were done 20-odd um, 20, 20 years ago when there were veterans still around and I could go to organisations and I started with my father's battalion and people were very happy to talk to me because they knew my father was involved. And that I'd been to Shaggy Ridge, so I'd worked in New Guinea, so I knew the country, I knew what they'd been through. So they, to a man really, um, you know, wanted to talk about it, because they think they realised they were getting old, and if they didn't tell their stories, no one would tell their stories. So um, that was a major part of it, and it was interesting, because as I talked to one person, they would say, oh, you should bring this person or this person, so <laughs> I would have a ready-made introduction, if you know what I mean. Um, And visiting, I used to visit with the, you know, Italian organisations and things like that. So I became quite well-known and trusted. And um, there was a a real, uh, only positive thoughts once, um, you know, once the first book came out. And then, um, as I say, I wanted to, i talked to more people since then as well. So
0: Obviously, there's a connection for you with, with this. I mean, not only because it was the subject of your first book and, and now your latest book, but uh, why Why Shaggy Ridge? Why did Shaggy Ridge have, have such a, a an impact and an imprint on you? Uh,
2: two reasons. Firstly, um, my father fought there, and when I was growing up, he died when I was only very young, so I never got to talk to him about it. I was only 13 when he passed away. and But he had a book from the war, which was a series of photographs, and one of them... Um, showed him climbing up Shaggy Ridge with a group of men. So I always had that in my mind that I wanted to go back and see where he fought. And the other thing was there was a, there's a particular photograph used to be in the War Memorial in Canberra, which is, shows part of Shaggy Ridge and the men up on the sharp ridge. It's one of the photos in the book. And it always impressed me greatly. I'm thinking, how the hell could you fight up there? So I got a job in um, New Guinea back in the 90s and, uh, in lay, which isn't that far away, and managed to go up there and probably the first white man to be up there for a long time. And uh, yeah, and sort of once I did that, I just had to write a book about it because no one else had sort of written about what had happened up there.
0: The uh, the the photos in the book uh, it looks um, uh, it looks like it's more akin to a place where you'd find Sherpas than soldiers.
2: Oh, absolutely! It's it's a crazy place to fight, but from the Japanese point of view, it was perfect because they had. Much fewer men and resources than the Australians, so quite along this basically one-man front, which is the top of the ridge, so they can hold up basically a brigade of Australian troops with you know a platoon of men, and um, they could see all the way down into the valley from the top point, and therefore they could tell when the flights were being made and things like that. So they had to be thrown off there. Um, but, yeah, crazy, crazy place to fight.
0: The, the importance of, of Shaggy Ridge as a, a strategic outpost for the Japanese?
2: Yeah, look, it was important because if they didn't hold that area, they had other troops um, further east uh, around Finch and fighting another battle with the Australians for the Yuan Peninsula. So if, if the Australians pushed through quickly through Shaggy Ridge area to the coast, they would cut all those troops off. And so it was very important they hold that, uh, that area. And um, Shaggy Ridge was the, it was one of the ridges, but it was the main position because it dominated all the other positions. So yeah, it was, it was very important to them.
0: In telling both sides of the story, do you do you feel that? Um, uh, I mean, we can't say the the good versus the bad, or the you know the the winner versus the mm-hmm. loser type routine. But did it strike you that there was diametrically opposed different versions of the story, or were they both pretty much on the same page?
2: Oh, pretty much on the same page because they basically cover the, the main things. The Japanese had a different... Their supply issues were much greater than the Australians, so they were always had problems with getting enough food and plus the medical facilities weren't as good. So everyone came down with malaria. Uh, malaria was um, a constant problem and just the conditions, the, the rain and the... Um, it's actually quite cold up on top of the ridge, so... And it rains every day up there, so the men had to endure that. And and you see that from both sides. And just having to climb up it, it's also very difficult. So yeah, very much um, on on one page with the with the stories. They um, they totally correlate. <laughs>
0: there's a there's a romanticism when you say you know when you use the expression the battle for Shaggy Ridge. There's that kind of Hollywood romanticism about it. But when you put uh, names and faces and and real people to it and real real memories, uh, gives it a different perspective, doesn't it, Philip?
2: Oh, certainly. And that's what uh, I aim to do with the book is to bring across um that it's, it's basically um a whole series of, of, of personal events which is happening up there and um to try so to tell the story of the whole battle through that rather than just give a indication of, you know, Company A went here and Battalion B went here and General A did said this and that. It basically it, it all came down to what, you know, a dozen men could do at the front line. <laughs> and uh there's a great example of that in the book where a, a Japanese raiding party of three men, two armed with um, bamboo spears and one with a sword, attacked the Jap- uh, Australian post at night and drove them off. And then the next day, the, the general in charge of the entire Australian operation was calling for another brigade to fight <laughs> to fight off these Japanese raids. Yeah. Um, and I found that very interesting to, you know, to, to go right into the detail of it.
0: Australian military history is is your thing these stories are the, and I know you've, you've told it before in your first book and uh, the, the, these stories don't don't they don't seem to have a, a place in our history the way that they probably deserve to is it do you
2: thought about why that doesn't happen Oh I think it's like everything we move on from events if you'd gone back 30 40 years there'd be a lot more people interested in the battle. I know myself from from data I get from the people pre-ordering my book um, most of them are probably over 50. Um, over 40, over 50. Uh, hopefully, you know, the book is readable enough and interesting enough for younger people to enjoy it, um, whether they do that through a real book or a ebook, book I do a lot of work now on Twitter and Facebook to try to gain that audience, and there are some younger people out there who are interested in, in the battles. But um, I guess it's also what's taught at school, um, how much we teach about our military history at school and how much of that is now um, lost. I'm not not sure. I mean, Gallipoli always is there, Uh, Kokoda to a degree. Certainly every Anzac Day, uh, we seem to turn our attention to it. But, you know, life goes on, I guess. There's a lot of other things that we worry about these days.
0: But this, but this is the foundation, and the, and I guess um, the you know the steel that we have in our that pumps through our veins, and that came from the blokes who went up and and fought in in these kind of battles, and that's that's what the country's kind of built on, and would be a great shame if we ever lost that as as part of our uh, the way we think about things and the way we see things, and maybe Anzac Day and Remembrance Day and those should be used to to retell these stories in a more modern vernacular, like you have done with this book.
2: Yeah, I guess so. Um, that would be appropriate, as you would have um, grown up. It's a different. We're a different country than we were, and um, it's just our country's developed. Same in in other countries. I guess America, England, yeah, Germany—they all changed. Japan uh, certainly changed. Absolutely.
0: Are there other stories similar to this one yet to be told
2: in this way? My book before this, D New Guinea, was also about the seventh division and that was a battle for Lay. Uh, I've written about The battle for Salamoa. I've written a book called Hell's Battlefield which covered all mm-hmm. of New Guinea. Yeah, but I'll I'll move on probably to do some other some other books. New Guinea will always have a place in my heart because I, you know, lived up there and my father fought up there. So I've known so many people who fought there. So Yeah. Some
0: people bake sourdough bread Some people watch 25 different Netflix series You wrote a book about uh, the battle for Shaggy Ridge Well done, congratulations on it These stories have got to be told And uh, and I think you're right when you say Now that they're being told in that kind of modern vernacular And and both sides of the story being presented That uh, might be something that uh, the the next generations might Might get more involved in
2: Hope so Yeah, me too, Kevin We'll see what happens
0: My thanks to Philip uh, and his book, of course, is called The Battle for Shaggy Ridge. Uh, The other book we talked about today, Tom Gilling, Bastard Behind the Lines. Uh, A couple of very good reads and uh, if you're looking for something to to get involved in and get immersed in, they're two very, very good books. My thanks to both Tom and to Philip for their time here on the Authorised Podcast. And my thanks, of course, also, as always, to our podcast partners, CSCG. Uh, If you're talking finances, you want to talk about tax, you want to talk about superannuation, want to talk about uh, lending, whatever it is, they know what they're talking about. They're experts in the field. You can check out their website, cscg.com.au, or give them a call and have a chat. They're terrific people, 9974 Hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast. There's more to come, and, of course, go back and check out some of our previous episodes with some terrific authors, including Monica McInerney, uh, Jock Frillo, uh, Catherine uh, Firkin, uh, Nicola Moriarty, uh, Peter Fitzsimons, William McGuinness. Uh, they're all there in previous episodes of this podcast where you found this one. Hope you enjoy those, and I hope you enjoyed this one. I'll talk to you again soon.